You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode 82 uh, of the show, and I am your host, uh, Troy Goodfellow. And with me today is one of my regular panelists, uh, Mr. Rob Zachney. Good evening. Um, I have good internet for a change, uh, so the sound should be perfect all the way through. I fought... My wife and I fought with a tiny piece of hardware, and I'm now getting perfect signal in my office. Uh, Now we just hope this recording turns out, because, of course, Skype and Pamela decide tonight's the night to freak out on me. But I hope we have a good show, and we get to keep it, because with us is someone we've been trying to get for a while, but he's been very busy. Uh, Someone who I met in Stockholm in January, a man always up for a drink and a conversation, a uh, friend of the show, friend of Flash of Steel from Paradox, the lead designer of Victoria 2, and copious commenter on the blog, uh, based on our uh, discussion of this game a couple weeks ago, Mr. Chris King. Chris, thank you for joining yeah, uh, My pleasure. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, we have uh, quite a time difference going on here. So I hope you don't pass out in the middle of it. Uh, so Chris, I'll probably fall asleep or something. <laughs> we'll try to sh- try to shake you or something. Yeah. So uh, I guess we should. I would like to go over some of the stuff we talked about uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, when we talked with Victoria too, and some of the questions we have for design. But I want to ask you a question. I ask a lot of designers when I have the chance to corner them. What is Victoria Two about? Oh, that's a tricky one. It's um, with Victoria 2, what we did was we tried to create a world where you know things happened and it was dynamic and you could influence. And then your job was to make what you will with the world we gave you. So what are the design? How, how, do, you, how do you make a world? I mean, people try to make different types of worlds. I'm playing Civ Five now. I'm sure if I was to talk to John Schaefer, he would say he's making the same sort of thing. He's making a game where there's a world and things happen in that world. Um, so what is a Victoria world? What, what is the world you're building? What does it look like? And why did you make the world like that? Well, I mean, basically, obviously, it's a 19th century game. So what we tried to do was capture some of the key features that made the 19th century interesting. So we have nationalism, imperialism, industrialization, clash, you know, social and political change. And so we, we, we attempted to, well, yeah, we definitely attempted to try and capture these in the game so that, you know, you, you would have this canvas to play on. And did it turn out just as you expected? Um... I don't think any game ever turns out exactly the way you expected it, but broadly, I feel that we we achieved what we tried to set out to do. Good, Rob. Well, I mean, what are, what are the areas that that you're really proud of? Like when you look at the design, what what are the things you look at and you say, "Well, we nailed that." Um, balance issues aside, I'd say the economic system. You know, with this interlocking economic system that just probably for a paradox game anyway the closest to a real world economy we've ever created how so and because basically you know mean certainly for most strategy games and certainly paradox games you know the economic system's heavily abstracted you know if you take eu3 as an example your provinces they give you tax and that's a number we've coded in and you know that determines the wealth of a province with victoria 2 you have goods you have people who buy the goods you have money flowing around and we always tried to close the loops in the same way a real economic system would run you know so no money popping out of nowhere if we could avoid it um no um and uh, sorry 
And basically, you know, we tried to make the production system as real as we could as possible. Yeah, I remember speaking to you in Stockholm about this, and you were very proud of the fact that, you know, you can, if you could barrel deep into the system, you could follow the dollars or follow the pounds. You could see how changing tariffs would affect how much good somebody would buy, and you could follow the happiness and the trail and all the political outcomes. And it is, you know, it's, it's very unique. You see this sometimes in, in trading simulations, but not really in a strategy game of this size. Was well, there any resistance, thinking this is kind of an ambitious goal to set? Well, no, I mean, obviously we had the original Victoria, which did try and do the same thing, but uh, not as well. So, I mean, we'd already had that as a concept that was achievable. So, you know, selling it as an improved version of an already existing system made it easier. Except the market is the big change. Once you change the market, you change everything. Well, I mean, the world market, there was a world market in the original Victoria. Yeah, but it was, it was run very differently, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, basically, it bought everything, Yeah, which made it a lot easier. I mean, there was, um, obviously, we had to make a few compromises on implementation. You know, people don't buy point to point. We make pools that people buy from, and then we split the money around just to make it achievable in right. a code-wise kind of thing. But, no, I mean, in general, you know, people were on board with this. You know, we, we felt we could make this. So, one thing I'm interested in is... Um you know, you say you're you're trying to to model the economics of the period, and one of the one of the reasons that sounds so ambitious to me um, is that economic models themselves are a contentious issue. Um, you know how economies function is mm-hmm. something people fight over. So how did you, um, so so how did you go about selecting a model? Like what what sort of assumptions did you build into the way Victoria Two works? Well, I mean, what what we did was we just. The first starting point was just a simple flow chart of where the money should go. You know, so we did that on paper first, going, you know, money will appear from gold mines. Gold miners will then use the money to buy goods. This will then be transferred round, and that was, you know, our beginning point. I mean, essentially, it's a very money orientated. We f- we focus in on the money. You know, that's the easy one. So, I mean, that was that was our start point for the design. Um, one of the, one of the things I notice, and it, it could just be you know the way I tend to prefer to run my economy, but it just seems to me that in terms of like um, you know tax revenues and productivity, um, the game really favors sort of a laissez-faire approach. Um, I, you know, I tend to run lean taxes. Um, you know, I just uh, you know basically I make it very business friendly, um, and yes. the game the game tends to reward me. Uh, for that, yes. but what where it gets interesting is how that ties into the diplomacy and the politics. Um, the game seems very informed by uh, Mar- Marxist critique. Um, the way the way the economy works. I mean, it, it you know while I'm playing this, um, you know the way great powers battle for influence. I kept thinking of how this is kind of the way Marx and Engels describe the world working. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing about Marx is with his very scientific approach is he's great for game mechanic design. You know, you've got to hand him for that. So, but yeah, so I mean, yeah, we did take a kind of, that. you know, the great powers did battle for influence. And this did happen, you know, probably not to the extent that Marx, you know, postulated. But, you know, that kind of th- things were there. I mean, um, you know, in the run up to World War One, Britain and France were frantically trying to deny Germany access to like, you know, 
certain raw materials that they wanted. So you did have that kind of struggle going on as well in the period. So we tried to include it in the game, you know, to, to try and get as many facets of the game period as we could. Well, see, that's that's interesting because, you know, this is not a period that I've I've read a great deal about the economics um, I haven't. I don't know a great deal about the economics of the period, but one of the things that I've often heard said is that um, this this great era of imperialism and colonialism. When you look at how you know the books balanced, um, most colonial ventures were actually fairly unproductive. Um, yes, and, and yet in this game, colonialism completely pays. It's it's the fuel for the economy. Yeah, it's one of those kind of compromises you got to make in when you do game design is that, you know, if you want to give, you know, if you want to give people cool game features, you've also got to give them a reason to use them. You know, otherwise, I mean, why sink the time into implementing them? Right. So, yeah, colonialism will pay off much better than it did historically. So, Victoria, it's kind of gone. Yes, same if you take EU3 as an example. You know, I mean, the richest provinces Spain owned were the low countries, historically. But we make America pay off big style to make colonization worthwhile. So, so the game sort of functions the way the uh, the power players of the period would assume the world works. Yeah, or wanted it to work. You know. Right. So, uh, the game's been out for about a month now? Two months? Yeah, about that. End of August, I think, yeah. Comes out, and I've been avoiding uh, the Paradox Forum, so I kind of got burned out on them for a while. So what has the general reaction been? In general, people have been fairly positive. I mean, there, there is obviously, you know, the game isn't perfect, so people have gripes, which I understand. But, you know, in general, like, people are saying, you know, we, yeah, you know, we, we, we focused, after Hearts of Iron 3, which, you know, people were disappointed with on release, we sank a lot of effort into trying to make Victoria a better quality game. And people have come back and said, yeah, there's been no crashes, you know, the, the, the game functions fairly well. But there's, there's some balance issues in the game, which is basically the feedback we've been getting from fans. And, well, it's probably to be expected with an ambitious project that not everything would be nailed down perfectly on release. What's the largest balance issue the fans are pointing to? Um, it's um, Rebels. There's yes. a bit too many. They're a bit too keen at the moment to rise up. But we've been working on that. In very um, tiny amounts. Yes. So we've been doing Rebels. Some suicidal Rebels. You've got to love them. Um, so, yeah, so we've been looking at, um, A, improving the economic balance, which obviously means that people are less likely to get unhappy, and also improving, like, the rebel logic, you know, when do you rise up, how often you should rise up, uh, and things like that to try and get the game to overall, you know, run a bit better. So that wasn't noticed or seemed to be a problem in, in, in the playtesting? Well, it wasn't so much it wasn't noticed. I mean, you know, it was a problem we had been steadily working on all the way through Right. Um, development. So, I mean, obviously, you know, when you come into it for the first time, you've not seen it before, you're looking going, my God, this is terrible. And whereas, you know, we're kind of looking at it going, look how far we've come. So, uh, any chance that the Confederates will not be declaring independence in 1849 on the dot every year? Yes, that's that I'm working on. I managed to get them to not do that by because then they wouldn't declare independence at all. So I've now got another solution, which is so far hopefully going to delay it a bit. So what was happening there? Um, Just the event triggers? Uh, yeah, I mean there was a, there was too many events spamming out, 
and also the trigger conditions for the Confederates to secede were a bit too too low. So we've um, we've tweaked down the events so that they'll now fire less often in the 1830s and 1840s mm-hmm. and more in the 1850s and 1860s to give you a sort of like gradual escalation. We've also like played around with slavery as an issue to again make it more gradual. You know, as you get more conscious of what's happening, you get more in tune with being anti-slavery if you're in a free state and then you also become more liberal but we've tried to step that to make it more gradual so why don't you explain to me why you want to redo victoria because this was it's kind of i'm not going to say it's a red-headed stepchild of the paradox series but it it came out and i liked it but it was you know it was it, it, it's the, it was the hardest of the hardcore of their games it took a long time uh, for it to really get it took the revolution's expansion to really get any satisfaction for a lot of people from it. But my understanding is you were in love with it pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I loved the original Victoria. I mean, maybe it just says how OCD I am or something like that. But, you know, I thought it was one of these, you know, great games that almost were sort of thing. And then, you know, what, what the revolution's expansion showed was that, you know, the concept was good. It was just the design of some of the features, you know, made the game too much work to play. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, after a while, you know, just going around promoting pops, you know, you just didn't want to do that anymore. You know, you know, even as a small country like Belgium, you just end up getting God, not another round of craftsman promotion. So you know, I mean, so you know, you know, it was a, it was a game I always felt had a huge, huge potential. If you know, we'd rethought some of the original design decisions and mm-hmm. you know one of the ones was auto promotion of pops no longer do you round up you know 20,000 farmers get them drunk give them some new clothes and tell them they're working in a factory so now you end up having pops being auto promoted leading to mass unemployment uh throughout france which has happened to me all the time yeah um we think we fixed that one <laughs> Everyone wants to work in a factory. Yeah, everyone now wants to. Everyone, people are now less keen to work in factories if there are no jobs. Okay. Well, that sort of makes sense. Yes, you know, they no longer want to promote to a life of unemployment. But there will still be unemployment. Yes, there will be. If if a factory gets shut down, I'm assuming. Yeah, factories get shut down, people lose their jobs, these kind of things. But no longer will people go, I just have a dream of being an unemployed factory worker. So one of the things you mentioned in the comments on uh, one of our Three Moves Ahead episodes, I think it was the one before the Victoria show, um, yeah. you, you pointed out that um, you felt like as design, like designers were, were facing a bit of a, bit of a uh, catch-22 where uh, I think you know, what you said was gamers seem to want these living, detailed worlds, um, these intricate, like independently functioning yeah. models. But as a designer, the moment you actually come close to giving gamers one of those, um, you know they they find a whole new a whole new range of things to complain about. Yes. Um, so I guess you know, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to to hear you elaborate on that theme a bit because it seems to me like with Victoria Two, you very definitely made a bet that you know the the model the model. Uh, you know, having this intricate model would be satisfying and interesting for players. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, I mean, um, I mean, there's a kind of thing, you know, I mean, you, you know, you, 
when I, you know, you you read our forums and people go, we want more complex games, you know, and I, I got PMs from people going, please make more complex games again and all these kind of things. You know, I, I did get this. And then when you produce, you know, a game that is more complex, at least for how the systems interact, than EU3, you know, people are, you know, I mean, it's not like people are rushing off to the shops and, you know, beating up old grannies to try and buy the game. You know, it's, you know, it's still, you know, I mean, Hearts, Hearts of Iron 3 and EU3 are both probably more popular than Victoria 2 is, even though, you know, this is what people kept telling us we wanted. So where do you think that comes from? I mean, you're a gamer and you love all these deep, complex games. Uh, and now you're a game designer. So where do you think that mentality comes from? I mean, you know, you read the Paradox forums every day. Um, you probably have a good idea for the psychology of the people who play these games and complain about them. Um, so where do you where do you think that idea that, well, we want more, we want more, wait, this is too much, or we want more and this still isn't enough, which is you get even more often, I find. They want, yeah. you know, EU3, they want even more stuff. Uh, Victoria 2, I'm sure you have people who want even more detail or even more options, or even more governments, who don't like yeah. how the politics is done, and want, yeah. you know, all kinds of separate laws depending on the House, and the, all the monarchies should be different from the republics, and I'm sure you're getting all that kind of stuff. I mean, what is the... Who, who is the Paradox Gamer, I guess? To be honest, I have no idea. You know, I just um, kind of... I mean, quite often, I mean... The satisfied customers, you know, the ones that are happily playing our games. They're not on forum. Right. No, right. You know, it's, the, it's the people with an axe to grind. Right. You know, I mean, I don't know, I mean, some people, you know, keep buying our games and then coming back and complaining and swearing they'll never buy another one. Then they pop up again at the next release. Well, no, that's... They're that's not happy and they'll never buy another one. Well, that, that's interesting because, you know, you, you mentioned... You know, I mean, it sounds like you guys do listen to this feedback and listen to what these customers are saying, but at the same time, you know that you're getting a really distorted vision of what Paradox customers are, customers are feeling. Um, so I guess, like, I mean, what is, what is the relationship like with, um, you know, such a cantankerous audience? I mean, on the one hand, they're, they're a great deal of trouble. On the other hand, um, are, they, are they your core audience? Are these your loyalists? Yeah, I think they are our loyalists, you know, and you've, you know, and that's why we, you know, I, I personally sink a lot of time into the forum, you know, to, to, to stay in touch with, with the fans, because at the end of the day, you know, they, you know, you, for, you, for every hundred, you know, well, shall we say noise posts, there's a gem of a good comment and a good idea and something that you'd be going, no, hang on a minute, this guy's got a point, you know, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of amateur game designers out there on the forum, which... Probably, you know, their posts maybe explain why they're not designing games. But I mean, there's also, you know, <laughs> there's also a lot of very good ideas that come out of the forum as well. So, you know, you've got this kind of, you know, it's not quite hands-on, but it's not hands-off relationship with the forum. Well, do you think, um, you know, I mean, when I think of Paradox, I think of really historically detailed strategy games. And... I mean, do you think you guys kind of make it harder for yourselves because um, the moment, the more you ground something in in history, the more the more you make it about something that really happened, and there's reference material you can you can look at to check the model against it. Um, you know, you, it, it does seem to invite people to look for other 
you know, pet aspects of history to be in the game. Um, I, I mean, do you, do you think that's do you think that's kind of the root of the problem? Is that your your, your games are the history buffs' dream, but you can never satisfy history buffs because they've all got their own areas of specialty. Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, especially the real hardcore history guys measure the game by how much history it has. But, you know, a game is also supposed to be entertaining and fun. So you've always got to make these compromises between what historically did happen and what's going to be fun in the game. We've also got a fair core of our fans who are strategy gamers who want a good strategy game that will give them, you know, choices and interesting things to do than just a simple history lesson. Right. Now, um, you, know, you, you said you, you loved Victoria from the first, and obviously I'm, I'm assuming you, you're, you're proud of the work you did on Victoria too. Um, mm-hmm. So it seemed, it, it, at least it seems like you might fall into that camp as well. I mean, what, what is the appeal for you um, in creating this, this, living, this living model world? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, what I really enjoyed the most about Victoria was it was the paradox game where you could have a real good time, you know, feel like you achieved something and never actually have to fight a war. You know, there was just more to it than, you know, preparing to attack the next country, which is, you know, sometimes how I feel with, like, when I play EU3, for example, you, mm-hmm. know, the, mm-hmm. you know, life's all about preparing for the next war. Whereas, you know, with Victoria, because you had, like, the depth of things like economics and politics, you know, it, the world, you know, there was more to do. So, I mean, that was the kind of thing we're trying to get in with Victoria too, as well, that, you know, there was just more to this world than one invasion after another. But in some ways, that's people play Victoria like a war game for the most part anyway, because they're, it's often very hard for some of these smaller countries especially to, you know, get things moving. You don't want to sit around and wait for your, because you're a laissez-faire government, you have to wait for your capitalists to have enough money to build the factories. You're sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting. And I often found myself, you know, starting wars because who wants to wait for Brazil to discover the railroad when I can be conquering Paraguay? Yeah, no, I mean, but it's, yeah, no, there's, it's still, there's still war there. And yeah, you can still have a blast fighting wars, but there's, there is more to it than simply, you know, painting the map your color. Right. You know, you got You've got the, you know, the colonization, you've got right. industrialization, you've also got like the sphere of influence system where you can sort of like get soft power if you so desire. So help me, I mean, because one of, one of my criticisms of Victoria is, is that, you know, I mean, for me, I spent most of my time, you know, enjoying the wars because that's where I really could see the cause and effect of my decisions, but... Um, there, there were two things with the economy and with politics. Is one they, they tended to run themselves a little bit. Like like I said earlier, I tended to find that uh, the best thing to do with the economy was sort of depress taxes and you know let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, and with with politics, there were a lot of there were a lot of cans I could just kick down the road basically and and deal and just avoid a lot of problems for a long time. So there was there was a lot of this. To me, at least, um, sitting around and watching the model run itself. Um, but my my intervention was only rarely required, except for when wars broke out. So, I mean, you know, what what should what should I be doing as a player to be having more fun? Basically, like, what what's what am I missing here? Well, I mean, I, 
I don't know how much you played around with the national focuses to promote various population types and things like that, because you can influence the composition of your country. So, you know, if you've got factories appearing, then you're going to have to, then you want to start encouraging craftsmen to go and work in them and clerks as well. You know, if you, you know, if you feel you're falling behind in tech race, then you're probably looking to encourage more clergy because they'll get your people more literate. So you got these these little you got these levers and they're fairly big levers that you can use to sculpt your country the way you want it. That's true, but I mean there are also levers you can't you can't adjust too much. I mean the national focus you you can't be changing that as you please. Yeah, no, it's a it's it's very much a gradualist approach. The model, you know, you take a decision, and you know it's a you know it's a strategic choice. You know, you're going to run with this for a while to get the benefit from it, you know, it was, it was, you know, how the design was conceived, you know, that choices would be long-term. That, you know, the people would, um, you know, you would be planning for, you know, that it wouldn't be like, you know, you press a button and instantly something happens. It would be, you know, a few years down the line, you'd start to seriously reap the benefits of your choices. Well, now, with a, with a gradualist approach, it seems that creates an interesting problem, um, is that, the game is running continuously, and you're watching your your country shift day by day. Swings in employment, um, you know, all this stuff is happening. You can zoom in for a lot of detail, but it's what you're what you're getting is a massive amount of data. Um, but it also seems to create a problem of of making that data into actionable information for the player. Um, so I mean, like, how did how did you approach taking all all the all the numbers and figures generated by this system and uh, turning that into something that the player can understand, um, at, you know, for for formulating strategy? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, we we knew from the start that the interface was going to be the toughest thing for this game. You know, so we 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 spent a lot of thought about how can we make the information as easy as possible to digest for a player? So, I mean, one of the examples is if you look at the um, the pop, pops, you know, they're good. So instead of being, you know, just some dry numbers that you look at, we gave you little icons. So you could just see, you know, you could see quickly, you know, who was doing well, who wasn't. We also, you know, used filtering options and all these kind of things that you could pick and choose you know, filtering and sorting, so you could, you know, get the most relevant information that you felt was important to you as quickly as you could, you know, instead of having to manually search through a long list. Right. Now, on the podcast, Julian, who couldn't join us uh, tonight, he was kind of overwhelmed by the numbers. He's not a huge yeah. Paradox player, but he's played some games. He's played CBU. Um, and he goes in and he says, look, there's just, there are all these numbers that I can I can find out with my population. There are so many charts, so many stats, and it's great that they're there. And his question, ultimately, I guess, comes down to is, how much of that does the player really need to know? And how much of that is just, you know, you guys being your usual encyclopedic selves, saying, this is the world, this is the country you're building? Uh, well, at any given time, the player doesn't need all the information presented to him. But, you know, each piece of information was relevant in specific cases. Mm-hmm. You know, like, for example, you know, the, um, the goods, you know, what, what, 
how much of the goods pops we're getting isn't that important on a day-by-day basis. But when, you know, you're starting to get angry people and you're seeing, oh, hang on a minute, they're not getting their goods, then you go, okay, there's my problem. What am I going to do about it? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there is a lot of information there, but not all of it's needed all of the time. And that's kind of like the player's choice to think, what, what do I want to know? What's the hardest information for you to convey to players? We talk about the interface, and Paradox has come a long way in interface design. You guys, Paradox used to be renowned for how terrible its interfaces were, and now they're actually pretty good considering all the information there. What's the hardest information to convey to a player? Oh, I don't know, actually. I, I have no idea there, honestly. <laughs> I, I wasn't too involved in the interface design. You know, I was more technical consultant going, well, this is important, this isn't, right. sort of thing. Um, during playtesting, what did you find players were struggling the most with? Um, initially, it was actually you know trying to balance your budget because the you know trying to get the economic system balanced was proving a real problem. But then you know later on, it was things like army management and things like this. As you know, as the armies got bigger, people found them a bit more unwieldy, especially after the kind of automation the Hartsman Three had offered. Right. I found the army pretty easy to handle. Yeah. I guess it just depends on the beta. Some yeah. are saying, you know, we could really do with automation, or the automation system for Hazard 3 would be great. Maybe I'm just a genius. Maybe. Too good for us. Well, no, it gets it gets a little tricky. Um, you know, with like, because you're limited in the number of good officers that are available at any one time, it, it becomes a little difficult to make sure that each, you know, wing of your army is well-led. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in the big wars, like, good God, that's a lot of micromanagement. Well, I found, you know, like, for example, playing someone like France and fighting Prussia, where you had, like, a single front to worry about, the armies weren't too bad. When I was like playing Britain, and you know, I was a, I was at war with the Netherlands because I was helping out Belgium, and you know, I'm landing troops in, Be- in to help the Belgians, and then this Dutch army pops up in Canada, so I've now got my attention, you know, like, you know, all over the world, trying just trying to keep track of everything, and then you know, things start to get trickier. Yeah, uh, the alert system I always thought could be a little bit better. Someone, you know, telling me. Because that that uh, upper right hand drop down chart thing that fills up pretty damn fast, so it'd be nice to have the, the sieges pretty much up to the top. So I know that the British have landed at Sevastopol and aren't just yeah. fighting me in the Baltic. Because Russia's a big country; they could be anywhere. If you want to get one to the top, you deselect them all, select the one you want, and then start adding the others in afterwards. Yes, yeah, so there's got to be an easier way to do that. Yeah, there is. Well, there should be, but with the code we have at the moment, that's that's the way we do it. Yes. So we'll just drag a box up. But so, you know, maybe maybe you can't answer this, but I remember. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but um, someone at Paradox pledged that if Victoria Two turned a profit, he would shave his head. Yeah, that was Frederick Wester, our CEO, who was right. supposed to be with us tonight, but could not make it. It's a bit too early for him. Or a so, bit past his bedtime, one or t'other. So, um, is his hair imperiled? He actually shaved his head at, was it E3 in the end? 
Yep. On on the grounds of pre-orders we'd had from shops, okay. saying numbers are already looking that good. Okay, so Victoria Two has been a success. As far as I know, you know, I'm not up on the financials of the companies, but certainly no one's come round, you know, going, what, what, what were you thinking when you asked when you said we should make this game or anything like that? <laughs> so does that mean we'll be seeing any, um, you know, expansions for Victoria? Like, are, are there, are there, is there unfinished business that you feel you have with the design? With the design we made for Victoria 2, no, but. We were kind of very ruthless with the design, you know, keeping it pared down to try and... Because we knew this game was going to be complex. And we knew, therefore, you know, testing it and balancing it was going to be difficult. So, therefore, we, you know, we, we were quite ruthless in our focus on the design. So, there's a whole number of areas which we knew, given time, we could probably, you know, make the features cooler. But chose not to, to, you know, try and produce a finished title. Right. So, I mean, I know that anytime you're, you're cutting things, at some point you probably have to to cut things you, you really were passionate about. Uh, you know, keen on. Um, what are, what are some? I don't know. What, what regrets might be the wrong word, but what do what do you look at wistfully? I mean, one of the early ideas it was it was ditched very very early in the design stage. I I had which would be really cool. Would have been was a regional markets with different prices, and then you could start factoring in transport costs, you know, to again make, you know, the economic system have a bit more depth, a bit more realism. Okay, so, like, instead of having, like, global economy, like, just begin getting down to the micro-economies of, wow. Well, you know, basically, you know, like, for example, you know, Britain would be a single market, you know, it would function as a market, but then, like, you know, Canada would be a separate market again and it would trade with Britain and things like this. And then right. you could have like transport costs and blockades. You could start blockading food from Britain. Uh, see, that that would have just made Julian's head explode. Yeah. So was it abandoned as being too too cumbersome, too complicated, too awesome? It was, it was abandoned for being too complicated. You know, we, we, we figured in ourselves that, you know, this world market is not going to be easy to do. And, you know, at the end of the day, we actually found a bug in the code this week. So, you know, I mean, we even, you know, with our simpler design, we couldn't make it bug free. So, so we, you know, we felt we were just going to make, you know, a rod for our back on release with a higher percentage chance of a buggy feature that was going to be totally broken if we went for a more complex solution. You know, and people do, you know, if your game is buggy, they will let you know. You know. Yes, they will. Yes. And then they will call you names on the Internet. Which, yeah, yes, which has been known to happen. You know, there were, were people who were, you know, disappointed at Hearts of Iron 3, and let us know, you know. <laughs> I liked Hearts of Iron 3, I will defend that review to my dying day. Yeah, yeah, but not everyone agreed with it. Nope. So, you know, yeah, we just felt, you know, if we over-engineered the world market, you know, and especially being so key, right. you know, you can't get very far in Victoria without money. You know, we would just be... You know, crazy. Go on. Go ahead, Rob. Well, I'm just, I'm curious because this games like this always—they certainly seem like uh, made by you know history buffs for history buffs. And I'm curious, um, you know, are, are there any, you know, what what were the influences on Victoria as as you're sitting down to design this game and and uh, make this living world? Um, what are, what what um, references are you using? 
Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, the first influence was the, the original Victoria, you know, which gave you something to look at and go, okay, that works, that doesn't work, you know. But um, but I, I, I read an extensive amount of history in my spare time. It is a hobby of mine. So, I mean, you know, I've read a whole number of authors of, like, you know, doing history of the 19th century to give me various, you know, influences on it, you know. Um, Eric Hobbeswain's he had a series of like four books about the 19th century very Marxist in outlook but you know very interesting read on the economics of the period and the industrial revolution and how it affected things and uh, like what are, what are your what are your favorite stories from the period I mean you know like you know when I when I when I come to Victoria too I, I I'm coming and looking for the story of Prussia's rise and transformation in the Germany or um you know the the naval arms race leading up to World War One. Uh, what what are the fi- what are your favorite stories? Like what 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 did you really look forward to capturing um, about this period? Well, I mean, obviously it was like the national movements, like you know, like the like the young Germany and the young Poland and these kind of movements. You know that you know these these nationalists who had been inspired by Napoleon, who you know when France went up in revolt in 1848, rose along at the same time, waiting for the revolutionary French armies to come and free them. And then France stayed at home, you know, it was quite, quite ironic, really. And the other one, of course, is like the effects that the Industrial Revolution did have on, you know, society and on countries. You know, and that was kind of two real things I felt were the most important in the period. You talk about the revolutions changed uh, politics and all the innovations and the reforms. Uh, that's one of my issues with Victoria Skin, and that is how rarely you feel pressure to actually implement them. Um, how you really have to push, you have, you have to... If the player wants to see the reforms, the player has to push for the reforms more than the population does, I find. Like I can go through the United States and stay, you know, never a minimum wage, child labor, uh, all the way through because there's never any, any real domestic pressure. Um, is that working as designed or is something kind of a miss there? Or am I missing something? Um, it's not quite working as designed, shall we say. I mean, you know, People pick up reforms as an issue, and they'll start getting angry about it, but they don't quite pick up enough of a reform issue to really drive the reform process the way I really hoped it would be. Because that would once again be a, be a, a, a suck on the budget, which would make the the economics once again more interesting, because you have to, once again, then you have to choose yes. uh, where you're going to be spending that money. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's something... Um, We've been steadily tweaking, you know, the whole kind of reform desire system and all these kind of things to try and get it to work better, you know, work it closer to the way, you know, it was envisioned. And you have a patch coming out next week? Uh, At the latest, unless we get some real nasty bug popping up. That's our plan. We've been working hard on a whole number of things in the game. I'm currently been busy rebalancing the economy after we, we did some fixes to the underlying code. What are the highlight fixes in this patch? I mean, I think probably the the nicest one has been a a new outliner thing for the sphere of influence system, you know, which will allow you to see in the outliner if someone's messing in your sphere or if, you know, someone else is trying to compete for this country, you're hoping to get drop into your sphere. You know, it should make that whole system easier to manage. Right. Instead of getting the constant alerts, oh, Turkey has kicked you out of... Yeah, Delhi. you'll see on you'll see on the outliner that Turkey is dropping an influence there. So, you do you want to do something about it? You know, and you'll get far better advance warning than to have to go constantly back to the screen. 
for the sphere of influence screen to see who's up to what in your sphere. So, I mean, just going back to the um, unrest and reform issue a little bit. Um, so, I mean, you know, you say it's not working as intended, but I'm curious, like, where where's the disconnect happening? Because when I when I look, check on the status of my pops, um, people are getting angry. Um, what's what seems to be lacking is you know their capability to do anything about it. Um, you know, in in Victoria too, it seems like the ruling regime is always sure, sure-footed. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm confident about what I'm doing, and so you know, we crush the revolts. Um, where, where why aren't we getting more pressure? Well, I mean, it's partly the um, the rebels were all firing off too early instead of rising in a more organized fashion. So that's one thing we're working on, that, you know, revolts will be less frequent and more nasty than in the the current version. So that's the first thing, you know, that keeping your eye on revolts is right. going to be important. The next the other thing we're working on is um, the actual reform mechanics aren't quite behaving at times. You know, the, you know, supposed, what we wanted was like that, you know, when the desire for reform got high enough, you know, the conservatives would, would give ground. But it just isn't quite panning out that way because the um, the conservatives are going nut. We're we're not doing it because you know yes you know these this small subsection of your population is angry, mm-hmm. but in general pe- you know the majority of people are content. So the conservatives are going let them revolt. <laughs> now Victoria too uh, doesn't have any. Let's I guess the only right now of the uh, latest of all the series of the Europe of the EU type games that has just the one scenario. It yes. just has the grand campaign. It doesn't have, now you can start in 1848, now you can start in 1870 or 1914 or whenever. Is there any uh, desire or plan to implement uh, shorter campaigns or more focused campaigns to have people fight World War One, or have Germany fight for its place in the sun or is this just going to be the grand campaign? For the moment, it's just going to be the grand campaign. I mean, the um, these scenarios are hell to balance. You know, if right. you take like the grand campaign, we started off with the historical population data, used that as our base point, and then I had to go round and start sending the clergy off to the fields for political re-education because paying for all these lazy priests was bankrupting countries. So, you know, going through every single pop file and, like, tweaking down the clergy, it was a huge amount of work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, you know, so get, getting these things to be able to, you know, yeah, it's no problem setting up a scenario, but getting one that's actually playable right. is a lot more work. Uh, well, are, they, are those popular with uh, Paradox people? I mean, do they tend to play the... I mean, I always play the grand campaign as it is, but... With Victoria too. I mean, I might like to play World War One. Well, I mean, what I my gut feeling—I've never actually done any surveys or anything like that—is that you know people will try a lot of the other scenarios, you know, and have fun with them. But in general, go back to the grand campaign at the end. You know, once I've tried, experimented with scenarios, I'll play the mm-hmm. grand campaign again. So you know, I mean, the grand campaign is probably the main one people play, but they do enjoy the other scenarios. Rob, well, um, you know, you, you were mentioning as you're as you're chasing down these these bugs lurking in the um, lurking in the in the pop files. You know, I got I got to thinking about 
you know, everything about this game is this intricate model, and as, as you say, it's designed to be influential. Um, you adjust the lever, and you watch the effects cascade down. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know really anything about, you know, actual game design um, or coding, but I'm, I'm wondering, um, <laughs> is chasing down bugs as nightmarishly difficult in a game like this as it sounds? Yeah, well, I mean, the first bugs are always the easiest ones. You know, you get them nailed off, you you know, but then as you get the obvious bugs, you start to notice the less obvious bugs, you know, so it's almost like an iterative kind of process. You know, I mean, we're going to release a patch and hopefully next week that will resolve basically everything people are publicly saying are problems in the game and people are going to be a lot happier with it. But then they're going to notice a whole slew of things beforehand, which weren't really problems because they weren't noticing them because of the problems they could see. So you have that part. And the other part is um, identifying, you know, what is going wrong. You know, I mean, we know that money is appearing in the system through a rounding error somewhere in the code, but we can't find it. You know, I mean, we think we've solved one, but we think there's now another one in there. So, you know, in... um, one of, one of the programmers spent last week just going through the market code, looking at it, going, okay, I think I've got a bug here, but I'm going to wait for the programmer who coded it to come back from holiday so we can have a second opinion here because it's very complex-looking code. <laughs> right. Now, what's, what's the procedure here? Because it seems like changing, you know, because everything's so interconnected in this game, it seems like changing one thing, you know, if, if there's ever a game where unintended consequences seems like it would be a hazard, it's this one. Um, so, so what's the process here for for testing these i mean how much do you have to run the game to verify your fixes are working as intended Uh, a lot i mean that's why the patching process has taken a while because yeah i mean we could have probably had you know two or three patches out by now but there'd be no guarantee that the fixes were actually doing what we wanted them to do so we've actually done a lot of work on internal testing to make sure the fixes are delivering or fixing what we want them to fix and not breaking anything else. So what's next for you? Are you going to be working on Crusader Kings 2? I'm working a bit on Crusader Kings 2. I'm also involved in Divine Wind, the EU3 expansion. Right. Doing design work there. Yeah, Divine Wind kind of surprised me. I did not expect another EU3 expansion. No? We kept we, we had an open forum vote and it won it again. EU3 won again. Yeah, but you yeah, also that's... said how many millions of users did you have to get before you announced Crusader Kings 2? You never got near that number, but everyone knew it was coming. Yeah, I know. That was probably one of the worst-kept secrets <laughs> not, that I'm, not that I'm disappointed in either. I'm actually no, I mean, looking forward to both. Yeah, I mean, um, Divine Wind's going should be pretty cool, actually. You know, we've, put, you know, we've kind of left Europe at last and moving on to like the, the rest of the world to see see if we can, you know, take the EU system a bit further. Because, I mean, the European Universalis system is very much geared towards, like, you know, European nation states. Yes. And it doesn't really cover the rest of the world as well as it could. So we're kind of playing around with that to see where else, see, see if we can fit more things into our system by doing various things more to be revealed in future dev diaries. 
Yes, Dev Diary soon, because Divine Wind is a December release. Yeah, first Dev Diary was out today. Oh, God. about the map. See, I don't even read the forums. I've got to read the forums. Again. God, you're sucking me in, Chris. I do my best here. <laughs> uh, any further questions, Rob? Well, one last one last thing, because you, you mentioned toward the beginning that um, a lot of these things catch you off guard when they're raised in the forums. A lot of problems catch you off guard because, you know, as you say, as you're developing the game, you tend to become very progress-oriented. Look how far we've come and not, um, oh, God, this is screwed up. Um, so I guess as you're, as you're moving forward with all these projects, and, you know, EU3 is a game that Paradox has worked on a great deal and changed a great deal. Um, how, do you, how do you combat this... Um, you know, the problem of not being able to see the forest for the trees as you spend so much time in the minutiae of these designs. Um, one of them is trying to, is playing the game. You know, we, we, we try and set up competitive multiplayer games in the office. So, you know, you're actually in there playing it in a competitive environment because, you know, you're going to get bragging rights in the office if you can come out top on this session. So, therefore, you know, you're actually, you know, experiencing the game as a player would instead of as a designer or as your pet project that you love. But, you know, this is, you know, I need to win this war. Otherwise, I'm not hearing the end of this for the whole week. So who, who, who's the top dog now? You or Johan? Um, well, in the, we, we, start, we just started a Victoria 2 multiplayer game on Tuesday there. And, um, well, I'm ranked number one after our first session, but I've, I'm also Great Britain, so... It's kind of understandable, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, no. So at the moment, I'm top dog, but I kind of got. But you, you, you were born with a silver spoon. Yes, I was indeed. You know, I'm superior breeding old chap. You know. <laughs> Great. Well, Chris, thank you for joining us here tonight. Yeah, always a pleasure. Uh, next week, uh, we will be talking about Ubisoft and Yugen Systems' new art deception-based RTS, Ruse, a game that I hope to finally put quite a bit of time into uh, now that my internet is working and Rob and Tom can lie to me all they want in Ruse. And uh, the week after that, we'll be discussing Civilization V uh, in an extra-long show. Chris, you go and get some sleep. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go do that. <laughs> All right, Rob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good night, everyone.